uh, you want to start? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, definitely okay. go ahead and start. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. In my head, I had a thing prepared. Perfect. Excellent. Welcome to The Cost of Convenience. Uh, this is a podcast that I was talked out of calling uh, Behind the Platsters. Uh, this is going to be about the... Let's introduce ourselves. I'm Patrick Thomas Perkins. I'm a comedian from here in Portland, Oregon. This is my friend. My name's Rochelle uh, Cody. I'm actually originally from Montana, but I moved out to Portland about, oh, Jesus Christ, six years ago now. What was I thinking? Um, I do comedy as well. I'm currently unemployed, and it's wonderful. You guys should try it out if you can. You have a podcast, too. I do have a podcast as well. It's called Talking Shit, Spilling Pee. It's all about what comes out of our bodies, literally and figuratively. Very I'm, it, it, uh, there's puns abound already. Yeah, I uh, mean, the basis of humor, I think, is literally what comes out of us. Oh, so. oh my God, that is deep. Write that down. I'm just so smart. You're so smart. Okay, what are we doing here today? Uh, today, we're going to talk about the cost of convenience. We're going to go... But over- it's convenient. It should be pretty cheap, right? Uh, you would think so. Uh, we got we got talked out of calling it behind the platsters because uh, I think it's more important. It's not about any one organization. Let me let me circle back to the top. Feel free to edit this part out. Uh, We're gonna do whatever <laughs> we want, and the more confusing it is for the folks at home, the clearer it is for us. Good. I sh- I I can't write a script, so I have a huge outline. Uh, this is. <laughs> the uh, the cost of convenience. We're here to talk about convenience stores, about their place in America and class, and literally the cost of convenience. Besides uh, uh, stand up, I've spent the two of the last two and a half years as an employee of Plaid Pantry, which is kind of a Portland owned corporation, uh, like Seven Eleven, Circle K, AMPM. Uh, a lot of convenience stores around the country. The Dollar Store, uh, or Dollar General, I think it is, a lot on the East Coast, is kind of the... Wait, so Dollar General is a convenience store, not just like a dollar store? Uh, I guess, uh, from what I from my research, a lot of the East Coast ones, like the Party Store and the Dollar Store, are common, like, corner store oh. mentality. Or, or I mean, names. they do send, sell snacks yeah. and stuff. It makes me think of Wawa. Yeah, a lot of... Didn't even know what that was until a couple of years ago. Uh, they're, they're all over the country. They, uh, serve a very, they were deemed an essential service over the course of the pandemic. And that was really what got me started on this journey. So, uh, two years ago, uh, two and a half years ago, I started working at Plaid Pantry, which is, like I said, our version of a convenience store here in Portland. And what I want to clarify is this isn't actually supposed to be like a Plaid Pantry hit piece. That's why we decided not to name it behind the Plaidsters. Um, well, but, I wanted to name it that. I think it is good to talk about it in terms of convenience stores in general, because a lot of what we will be talking about, some of it may be unique specifically to Plaid Pantry, but in probably 99% of the situations, these are not unique situations to just Plaid Pantry. Any local chain or any convenience store, especially a chain one, is likely to be doing a lot of this shit too. And that's kind of what's important. What's unique about Plaid is that they're a sort of microcosm of the things that occur everywhere. And when we get on to kind of the the biography of Plaid, as well as what I'm going to call the people's history of Plaid, uh, we'll we'll discuss that more in depth. But I did want to get a dis- give a disclaimer up at the top. I also have ADHD. Uh, and I am physically disabled. I'm missing three vertebrae, and it gets worse from there. 
Uh, Come on, ladies. Uh, <laughs> oh, I am available. Uh, but but I say that to say a lot of this research has taken me about a year and a half because I do this while, you know, in bed in between like ibuprofen and CBD soda hazes. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm not a journalist. I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm a stand-up comedian, high school dropout who really, really likes to read and is a big fan of history. Uh, and with the help of mainly the Oregonian archives, I've cobbled this together. Um, but I just wanted to get off the top that, like, my goal with this isn't to revolutionize convenience stores. That is ridiculous. My hope with this is that at some point, somebody who is a researcher, a historian, a journalist can pick up this story and do it justice, do it true service. Uh, so, you ready? We're not professionals. We're just comedians who want to fill our time with something other than drugs and cartoons. Exactly. Uh, and I kind of, and I used to work at Plaid Pantry, like I said, so this is important to me. First, let me ask you something, Rochelle. Shoot. What, what, what do you think was the first store? Where do you think the first store was, historically speaking? Like... Stores in general or convenience stores? Stores in general. Where, where do you think general. the first... Like first commerce. Yeah. Um, I mean, I imagine it'd be somewhere between like the Tigris and the Euphrates and like the little like, you know... Trick question, nobody knows. Oh, man! <laughs> and I'm probably super wrong, too. It's been a long time since I've done any ancient history work. Well, what they what, what I found out, like Wikipedia, a few other just stupid sources, is that we don't exactly know. We know as long as there have been cities and people, there have been some form of commerce and trade. Right? So, and in fact, one of the, like, things I remember hearing in a history class was that, like, they think cities started as just trading centers where people were like, oh, if you come here and trade, I don't have to leave. A bunch of us will live here kind of deal, right? So it, yeah. it, it was a matter of convenience from the start. It's right? like how small some town, small towns in Montana, all it is is like a bar, a gas station, and a po mailbox. Yeah. Okay. So, or like a post office. So it's it, like the three things that you need to like sort of live out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Exactly. And that's, that's actually, we're going to get to that in a minute, how that's been a pretty common thing throughout history. It wasn't really until like, like there was some of it under feudalism. The first, the first stores that we know for sure were like buildings that people went to, to sell were in ancient Greece. Apparently those were the first like market stalls that were set up, but there's always been like farmer market kind of locations. But it was probably when you mentioned the Euphrates, like like that weird era between like ancient Egypt and ancient Greece, where like all of the stuff started, right? Yeah, everything was happening everywhere, but we have a pretty limited view because we are very Eurocentric. Yeah, it, there could have been something going on in South America between any of the empires there. There could have been something in East Asia. Uh, yeah. The early Chinese dynasties could have had something. I'm, again, not a huge historian. I'm just a fan of history. I'm just really bad at it. The thing, uh, the thing that's important to notice, uh, to note, is that for when we get to America, uh, capitalism kind of has really started to be a system that takes place, and that's important. It's it's been going on before America, but I figured I would start sort of well, not start, but we we would have a strong basis with the history of America. Uh, and early American stores functioned as basically. You could rent or own your building, and you had enough money that you could buy things to resell people at a marked-up cost, right? And stores were usually kind of specialized, other than general stores, 
but you couldn't necessarily rely on the general store to have, like, you couldn't necessarily go there and know they're going to have pots and pans, mm-hmm. right? Like, you, you you might know they'd have flour or coffee or whatever, but you couldn't reliably count on a whole lot of things. Uh, the basic system for, uh, and this is from the Saturday Evening Post, they have a great video on there called uh, Grocery History, if I remember right, if I'm writing it, if I'm reading my notes correctly. I can read my own handwriting. This is what this is about. Yeah. And basically the system was that you would be a store owner, right? And you would have the, the storehouse behind you and the storefront. That's where we get those terms. Okay. So it's kind of like our, our idea concept of like a mom and pop shop. Yeah. And you would own all the stuff, and you would show up with your list, give it to me, and then I would have somebody deliver to you what you what I had, right? So you'd come in, like, I want a pound of coffee, uh, gingham, whatever the hell that is, right? And a, and It's a, a pattern, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's a type of It's fabric. like the picnic pattern. Yeah, there was a, dra- a runway on RuPaul's Drag Race that so. was gingham-themed. So, so you bring me your list with your RuPaul Drag Race items, right? Sequins, all that you have. And I would get my shop boy, probably shop boy. Uh, I doubt. I don't think there was a lot of equal opportunity hiring in the early 1800s to uh, run your order to you at some point. Hashtag canceled. <laughs> and the uh, the the thing uh, thing that's important to note is that all of this operated on credit. Right, there wasn't a lot of cash interaction, uh, unless maybe you were like passing through a town or whatever, because everything early American society was very agrarian, right? So it was very much based on seasonal cycles, whether or not you had money. So if you did, did you watch Little House on a Prairie as a oh, kid? Oh, my sister read them to us when we were so so kids. that uh, really racist. In case you guys were wondering, I I don't remember much, but one thing but I yeah. do remember is uh, what's his name, John London, or or, or somebody is gonna. None of the names are important. Don't don't use the name. We'll edit the name out. But <laughs> The, the dad on Little House in the Prairie, he, uh, he, there was always this running, or maybe it's the Waltons. It was the Waltons that I'm thinking of. <laughs> but they, uh, there was always this running theme about trying to pay off the credit with the store. And they would finally get all caught up on their credit, and then, like, something would happen, and they need to make a purchase, and it was a big deal. Uh, all well, and of- I mean, this sounds almost like it, it sounds, especially in pioneer societies, they probably experienced a lot of the same issues of, like, what sharecropping was in the south too where it's like they price things and pay you or like know how much you're making in a way that you are constantly relying on paying them so Uh, even uh, if they're in debt it's okay because you're gonna get that money back yeah and and everything is seasonal and you you're also kind of incentivized not to go too crazy with the prices because if you do nobody's gonna shop with you and they can't pay you back if they if they owe you so much so they'll just leave town or whatever i mean that's kind of (laughs) there's a lot of there there's a podcast i recommend uh another resource that i use is the dollop and behind the bastards quite a bit they have a lot of information that related to this um but the the dollop has a lot of stories of con artists who would do something in a town and then just go someplace like 20 miles away and do the same thing again. And if your store isn't priced competitively, I, I don't know if that's the right word there, but like if it's not priced kind of fairly, people aren't going to shop with you. They'll just do that. They'll just get up and move to wherever we last stole from the Indians, right? Like it's yeah. it's Native Americans, my bad. Uh, feel free to, but the, the point is that it's store owners. It's based on a system of credit 
And it's very much you bring me a list and I send it to you. It's and not you walking through the, sh- the shelves and deciding what you want and there's specific times of day it's open. Yeah. And it's, and another, another thing I want to kind of, uh, highlight is that it's not a class, uh, issue exactly. If you're wealthy, you send your servants to go shop for you. If you're poor, you send your kids with the list. But it, it everyone kind of has an equal access. The amount of money you have or where you are class-wise just chooses a little bit of the quality, but mostly the quantity of what you can get a lot of yeah. the times. Yeah, and right? probably priority on like items that are running out. Yeah, and if you're, and oftentimes if you're wealthy, you're wealthy because you are the store owner too. So it's or you're the banker, or somebody that that. Uh, yeah, if you're playing Oregon Trail, yeah, you want to be a store owner or a banker. Those were the good ones. Yeah, and all of this changes a little bit in 1859 with the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company. Uh, because uh, branding was not the same thing back in 1859, and they didn't just come up with succinct names. The Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company is the first chain store, right? And it, it's the first one. It takes it takes this concept of a store, and it, it does just that. It makes it a chain. One guy kind of owns the whole thing. And the owner of it isn't important. He's not going to play into this. What's important is that it lowered the prices even more than they were and made them standard. So what you were paying in New York was going to be roughly what you were paying in Charlottesville, is going to be roughly what you're paying in Chicago, is going to be roughly what you're paying in like Atlanta. How big was this chain? Um, How many stores? Uh, we'll get to that. One second. I mean, Sorry. No, no, I'm you're fine. Excited. You're fine. That's, that's No, that's, that's good question i have that uh, but what i wanted to clarify is it's also it, it follows that same model of there's one clerk there's nothing special right uh and all of their prices are stuck at a 12 percent markup and never goes higher than that in 19 so in 1859 they start by 1900 they have 198 stores Okay. Right. So they start roughly the end of the Civil War. I think that's, yeah, a little bit after the Civil War. And by the turn of the century, they have 200 stores. We don't have 50 states. So that's more than two stores in every state, which is a pretty big deal, right? Uh, by 1912, they, they renovate and they add groceries. So 1859, just quick checking. Yeah. That was before the Civil War, actually, a couple okay. of years beforehand. So this was pre-Civil War, but probably was really reinforced by the commerce necessary for the Civil yes. War. And the fact that the Civil War brings in trains and all that and like yeah. makes, makes them kind of cross-continental and whatnot, mm-hmm. makes shipping way easier after the fact as well. Sorry for that on-the-fly fact-checking, but I figured I was interested because I was like, Pretty sure Civil War ended around 1865, and that part I was right yeah. about. And and you're going to notice I am very bad with exact dates. I am very good with narrative. Yeah, so, I'm okay with the date, so I can help out. Okay, so, <laughs> so by 1912, they add something else, which is groceries, right? And this is a big deal, because up until this point, a lot of people have kind of their own garden patch, right? Oh, you, yeah. You're growing your own tomatoes, and you're... you're Corn, maybe. Yeah, you can in your own shit. Yeah. And as 1912 comes around, cities are becoming more of a thing. Industrialized industry is becoming more of a thing. And you don't have the time for your own garden. Or the space. Yeah. And so it's much easier to go to the store and get the, the, the grocery items. It wouldn't surprise me, too, if there was some sort of marketing campaign that, like, you don't want to grow your vegetables like a poor person. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised because because in seven years, 
they get 1,600 stores total that crop up oh, wow. after they add groceries because it's it's convenient. Clearly, people need it, and that's that's one of the important things uh, to kind of pay attention to as this, as we go along here. As your notion of convenience changes and what you're looking for from a store changes, how much money they can make off of you changes too. Because as we started, like in the 1700s, it's all a variety of different stores. They're not very reliable, and really, the notion of convenience is how hard is it for me to go to you and get this thing right because there is no there's no quick meals there's a meal the, the 1800s and the 1700s were premier meal prep time right like you right. had like you had time to cook yeah and you had a soup that lasted all week or crazy stuff like that because you needed yeah. to and people were more charitable and you were able to get more of your own meat by hunting and that kind of thing right oh, so yeah. by the time we get to uh, when is this 1912 when they add groceries 1919 also which is as the first world war is happening as industrialization is happening mm-hmm. and we're phasing away from an agrarian society into one that's all about industry and doing careers going into well and it's probably important to talk about the dust bowl and the fact that a lot of places were drawn like were drying up at that point and you couldn't grow crops so they had to rely on stuff being imported yeah. from other places and you're you're not taking care of yourself the same way either in the sense that you're not growing your garden you're not going hunting yeah. you're going to work you're right? going to work you need to pay someone else to get food prepare the food make and package the food so you can get the food yeah and so the notion of a convenience store at this time not convenience but convenient is that it's easy to uh get to and it can give you all of the things you want and need right so it's 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 convenient because i can conveniently get all of the things from there uh and it's up until 1916, 1919, this is very much the, it's all the same of there's just a clerk, you bring them a list. Sometimes you wait for them to bring you the stuff, but oftentimes in bigger cities, uh, they'll deliver. In the country, same deal, they'll deliver you once a week, right? Uh, this all changes in 1916 with the Piggly Wiggly. I love that name. I didn't even know that was a thing until I watched the movie where they talked about stealing something from a Piggly Wiggly. And I was like, I have no concept. For the phrase Piggly Wiggly in my head. Uh, it started in Tennessee. That's and, why. Yeah. And, it's, <laughs> and it revolutionized shopping. All right. Because like I said, up until this point, you come to me. I'm the clerk. You come to me with the list. And then I have somebody else shop for you. Oh, here's a question I had. Sorry. Go ahead. So in that time frame when they took the list, went to the back, grabbed the stuff for you. How many times do you think they were like saying, oh, we don't have enough of something because they didn't have enough stock. So they'd short you so that other people could have it. So like, I wonder how much internal rationing of items was happening. I, it's hard to tell. And it's also, the, I think that's also a good note because it, it I don't know. But I would assume that people within your city know what you're doing, right? So if you're, if everyone knows you do that. If there's enough transparency. Yeah. But yeah, I wonder if there, I wonder if that was what was nice about having shelves with stuff. Is it created a transparency to be like, this is all we have. Yeah. There, have there, it. There was some of that, but there's also the part of like, you, it creates this thing where if your town is small enough, you really are the a-hole that runs everything and like shorts people and everyone knows it is not worth it to go to the store or everyone knows, hey, the store owner's good. They're a yeah. great guy, right? And it, it I, I don't have an exact answer, but I assume 
that as a result of how society was a little bit closer and we were a little bit closer to violence in interpersonal violence that you're a little more willing to like I'm going to be as fair as possible with the prices because everybody knows where I live. And we'll have a gun. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, back to the Piggly Wiggly, though. Sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. That was a good question. I just wish I had an answer. Uh, but the Piggly Wiggly changed everything because it was self-service. It was four aisles. It had 600 items. And you knew what everything was because it's very well marked. Right. And, and that's, that 600, I, Rochelle's eyes was like 600 items. I know, cause that just doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah. But I know that in that time frame, it absolutely would have been. And, and it's also in this time period, we're getting into kind of corporatization and branding and marketing very early versions of this. Right. Uh, and the, 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 the two, the three big things about the Piggly Wiggly, the first one is it's self serve. So you can go and put the items in your cart yourself. Right. Which some people probably scoffed at that. They're like, you're going to make me pick this shit out myself? That was that was the other thing. It fucked with people big time. That's so funny. Because, because on one hand, people were like, it's going to be mayhem. They're going to steal. There's going to be no way to stop it. Like People were convinced like it's just going to be uh, just unmitigated madness. This is the equivalent of like self-checkout now. Yeah, there and there was some of there was some of that element which was people some people were excited because they're like, oh, I can get away with stealing whatever I want or whatever. And then some people liked it because they're they're like, I get to choose. Businesses liked it because that self that that fucking with people, part of that was that you could impulse buy for the first time oh, ever. Oh yeah. Because before that I gave you the list and if all if I didn't have the thing, you might offer a substitution or you might offer me a discount later or something like that. But in the Piggly Wiggly, I can decide, oh, you know what I want? Sugar and I want eggs and I want whatever, right? Uh, and the other big change, like the, the kind of biggest change was they stopped having credit be the, the methodology off of which things ran. And it started being pure cash and or like a internal company credit as opposed to like, like it didn't function the same way where you'd go to the store and I'd say, Hey, you owe me for the week. You would say, nah, you owe me a hundred dollars now and you can't come back and tell. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, uh, the the Piggly Wiggly was the first big example of it. It you get there there's a there's a class element to shopping from kind of here on out. Because before this, you know, like I said, you could send your servant to the store, you could send your kids to the store. There wasn't a big deal about going to the store. But now when you're gonna go to the Piggly Wiggly, at least in nineteen sixteen, you're gonna be seen out in public. So people start kind of dressing up for it it starts being like you want to make sure you're dressed nicely because you're going to a proper place and appearance mattered more they didn't have the concept of oh it's just walmart so Mm -hmm. we don't really need to dress up it's it's the opposite of the opposite it's like oh we're going to target yeah yeah kind of like it's 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 how we grew up thinking about the mall and actually that's kind of that's what i was going to touch on which is as this goes along uh, it becomes more and more of a class issue. And the other thing is that uh, as it goes along, the types of stores you get change. So after after the Piggly Wiggly, we'll, we'll get into convenience stores in a second. But after this, the way it works is you get supermarkets a few decades later, right? And that's, um, that's the places like Fred Meyer's here on the East Coast, Kroger, uh, Walmart probably started around this time. I didn't look too deeply into Walmart because they didn't, they, they weren't, this part isn't big to the story that we'll get to. I just want to see because oh. I want to know now. Okay, cool. I'll take a sip. 
<laughs> I spelled it Walnart. <laughs> but my the, the important 1962. Okay, cool. So yeah, it's about when a lot of this the the bigger story is going to start. So the important thing to notice is when supermarkets come out and they start offering not just food but other items as well, right? Like there's a period in the 40s and 50s when you can go and like get barbecue grills and stuff, right? <gasps> like it's yeah. Uh and and uh the important part though is it becomes uh an activity right to go to the supermarket and as cars become a thing you you cars also kind of create a, a social standing as well poor people aren't getting them even though there's a rising middle class there's still a kind of class distinction and the nicer the that's this is when you get the notion of the nice store right versus and i'm a lot mm. of that's racially coded to be like the white store the black store you right? mean supremacy is also race-based yeah it's crazy Stop. so <laughs> so but the important thing is that you get this kind of overarching supermarket that people go to they dress up it's fancy right and uh, it, this is by the 60s, right? And then you also have kind of the grocery store slash grocery market. And that's much more like the Piggly Wiggly, uh, kind of how you and I would think of Winco or Albertsons, where it's just specifically kind of, uh, there's maybe a grocer, maybe a baker, maybe a butcher, and some general goods like sugar and whatnot, mm -hmm. right? And then you start getting these corner stores, uh, these convenience stores. And we'll get into the history of that in just a minute. Right. Uh, this is kind of wrapping up this section of the overall history. And the thing about convenience stores in this time is that by the 60s, right, the notion of convenience has changed again so that it's how easy is it for me to get bits and pieces of what I need uh, outside of my bigger trip to the supermarket later in the week. So you go to the convenience store because uh, you've been kind of inconvenienced more than it's convenient to get anything. There. Well, and I imagine it had to do with um, both parents started to work because, like, the women's liberation was starting a little more, so there were more double-parent households, and people who had lower-class jobs were probably working during the times that these places, yeah. these grocery stores, and these supermarkets were open, so they needed somewhere else to go to to fill the gap on the days that they couldn't make it to the normal yeah. store. By by the 60s, we haven't quite gotten into, like, graveyard jobs as common, but you're right. It's it's, yeah. it's very much... Uh, there's a whole lot of things changing, and we'll, I actually have a little bit of that plan, too, but you are correct that, that as... As your class, as you go higher in class, the more you can get at the supermarket and the less it's about it's convenient to go to the store up the street and get the eggs I forgot, mm -hmm. right? And if you're wealthy, you can you can dress nicely whenever you want. And it's if you're seen in public, you 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 dress up more when you're seen in public, right? So there's like you know that thing about Mister Rogers comes home and he takes off his jacket and he changes shoes. Like that was a kind of thing that people did very much in that time, like leading up to the '60s, which is where our our, our main story will start. Uh, so that's that's kind of the history of shopping as it is. And I was going to cover convenience stores next. But any okay. any notes, any thoughts before we go on? Yeah. Um, I think it would be interesting to look more into um, if there were regional differences, especially depending on what kind of communities were in those areas. Like if it's a full, fully white community, this story makes a lot of sense. But I'm wondering about communities where there is a lot more diversity. So like those communities probably had to have their own stores so they didn't have to deal with yes. the shitty-ass white people. And and stores ended up... Uh, I didn't put this in here. Uh, it's uh, I, I recommend to anyone listening on YouTube, you can go to Yale. Uh, it has 
class courses you can follow online, like oh, whole shit. course lectures. That's awesome. And the the current last time I checked, the current president of Yale. Uh, was this dude that offered from emancipation to about Barack Obama, black history in America. Uh, and one of the points he makes is that grocery stores in particular had a very, uh, were very influential in fighting apartheid in America and fighting for the civil rights because, um, one, they, they had a strong union, right? So it's a job that you want because it's 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 a member of the community and you make a decent living and uh, you're you're also you're helping the community and right it's a stable industry like there's gonna there always you're gonna be need food. grocery store workers yeah uh, and so as as more and more black people fight to get jobs in stores it kind of makes segregation harder and harder to enforce uh, and oh, there's fascinating. this yeah and there's this one I cannot remember. Uh, where I heard it. So this isn't an accurate source. But there used to be this place in D.C. called Sanitation Groceries. Uh, and it, it there's a lot of different versions you'll hear of how Safeway got its name. And one of them is that they changed their name after a huge series of boycotts, sit-ins, and employee strikes that gradually uh, gave black employees more and more rights. Because at first, they would they would be these like kind of white stores in black neighborhoods that black people were priced out of and couldn't even work at, right? And Ugh. so you'd you'd go into the store and everyone would treat you like shit and they would act like you were gonna steal. And nobody was there that would that would even be polite to you because they didn't look like yeah. you because I mean racism <laughs> because of just racism yeah and so uh, and with this story in particular they do this thing where they're like okay 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 we'll hire black people but then they only hire them in the storeroom like only in the back half of the store and they're like no 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 you're hiring them front and back because cashiers make more than than stalkers and whatnot and so like they do sit in and boycotts. Until eventually, like, it's it's fully kind of, uh, uh, what's that word? Integrated? Is that the word I want? Integrated? Uh, like, uh... Desegregated. What's desegregated. That? I mean, yeah, you could just say until there was, like, market desegregation. Yeah, and so, but the bad, the and again, this is uh, anecdotal. I can't even remember the, the source that I got it from. It's just always stuck with me. But the bad press was so much so that they were like, we can't be sanitation grocery anymore. We need oh, to... That just sounds gross. Yeah, well, it was, it was or maybe it was sanitary, but it was one of those... It was that just one, makes me think, it, was it unsanitary at a point? To us, that's exactly what it sounds <laughs> like. But back in, like, the 50s and 60s, it's like, nope, they're clean. They're they're safe. And we had a big issue. Uh, there's, there's an episode of The Dollop I highly recommend called The, the Poison Squad. Uh, and we had big issues with people putting like poisons into food because it made it look better or oh preserved it oh, preserved the exactly flavor. Accurate. Yeah. I mean, we were using radioactive material to make glow in the dark dials on watches, and the women who made them would lick the brush to, in to between, make... so their faces basically melted off with cancer. And oh. America, capitalism, whatever. Well, um, do we feel like we've wrapped up this segment then? Yeah, yeah. are you good on that? I, I do. Yeah, I'm going to pee. Okay, good. This is the credit portion of the Cost of Convenience podcast. Unless otherwise specified, all information was obtained through the Oregonian's historical archive or by personal experience. We were recorded by Rochelle Cody. We were edited by Patrick Thomas Perkins, who also supervised and researched. Uh, after I edited it, I realized that I had a few thinks that I hadn't given when Rochelle and I recorded, and I wanted to do so now. The first one is to my son. Thank you very much. I love you. I appreciate all the help you've been. I would like to also thank 
Julia Bemis, Mei Shomei, Dustin Abels, and Baby James for being amazing co-workers while I was at Plaid Pantry. I would also like to thank Ash Alexander, Crystal Kordowski, and Jaron Wales for their assistance with the research. I have a lot of personal friends I should thank, but in particular I would like to make note of Joe Hieronymus, Tony Burgess, Allison Beckwith, and Chelsea Margaret and Lion Mermaid, who were a great deal of support. Uh, and I'd like to thank the comedy community, because people wouldn't have heard about the boy count if it wasn't for you guys. In particular, I'd like to thank for that Jane Malone, Belinda Carroll, and Coor Coheen. Thank you, Dirty Angel, as well, in particular, Courtney and Tyrone Collins. If you would like to say thank you to me, uh, I am currently disabled, unemployed, and not on disability or unemployment. Uh, and if you'd like to support me financially, you can... Venmo at Patrick-Thomas-Perkins, Cash App at PTP Mr. Megalomania, that's P-T-P-M-R-M-E-G-L-O-M-A-N-I-A, or PayPal at Patrick Thomas Perkins, all one word. Once again, thank you, and please don't forget the cost of convenience. So Patrick wanted me to let you folks know that uh, I sell artwork, and I do. I predominantly do poor painting, which is the most uh, elegant way of saying I have ruined uh, my chances of getting my deposit back at my apartment. Uh, I'm going to edit all of that to say I primarily do porn. Just no! <laughs> I wasn't even done, you butt nugget! Um, so... If you folks are interested in looking at the visual art that I have created, um, you can go to at whore for poor on Instagram. So W-H-O-R-E-F-O-R-P-O-U-R. Yeah, I spelled that right. Uh, and you can see my artwork. At this time, I'm not really interested in doing commissions because fuck customer service. But if there's a piece that's listed for sale, just send me a direct message and we'll see what we can do about getting that in your hands and your money in my fucking Venmo. So um, definitely check them out. Some of them are cool. Some of them are not. But, you know, it's whatever. I don't have any of the embellished pieces up yet. So those are that's a new addition. Give, give, give Rochelle your money so I don't have to. Right? <laughs> yeah, Patrick can't afford me, honey. I am actually feeling horrible that I'm like, I'm going to start a Patreon 